first letter of Peter, chapter 1. <coughs> 1 Peter, chapter 1, from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, ye have been put to grief in manifold trials, that the proof or trial of your faith, being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved or tried, by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen ye love, on whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul concerning which salvation the prophet sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things, which now have been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. Wherefore, girding up the loins of your mind, be sober and set your hope perfectly on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and, having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. I'm sorry. And take... I've lost my place. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And on my behalf, that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now we'll sing another hymn, shall we? 246. Now this evening, I want to um, complete uh, the, the uh, talk or <coughs> message, testimony, um, that um, I began last Thursday evening when I spoke from my heart about some things which have encouraged my faith. And I pointed out to you that evening that the things which encouraged my faith may not be the things which encourage <coughs> yours. And one dear brother who shall remain unnamed and unknown approached me and told me that he was very, very glad I said that because they certainly didn't encourage his. Um, however, um, I would like just to underline it again that this is a personal matter. I am not talking about things which are the basis for my faith. Um, that's an altogether different matter. I am talking about some things, some things which encourage my faith. And um, uh, I thought it would be good just to um, share just a few things in a conversational way, which in the trial and proving of my own faith have um, steadied me at times and enabled me to go through. I think all of us have, uh, as we go on, a certain suspicion of that which is only subjective. Uh, because we all meet people who are deceived and deluded. And therefore, sometimes the enemy can come to you and can say to you, well, do you think it's all one big delusion? Do you think it's your imagination? You say the Lord spoke to you the other day, spoke to you today. How do you know it's not your imagination? You said that that, um, that word in the Bible helped you. How do you know it's not your, uh, your own wishful thinking? that uh, it spoke to you like that. And uh, you can even have the enemy come to you and speak about your salvation, say perhaps you were just deceived yourself, perhaps you just kidded yourself that uh, in fact you were even saved. The things I've spoken about um, so far have been objective things. Um, last week we spoke, spoke about two matters which at least have encouraged uh, my uh, faith. The first was the Word of God, it's, uh, I know there are problems and difficulties, but the thing that has so encouraged me has been the unity uh, amidst all the variety and diversity 
the overwhelming unity of the Bible. 66 books, but the most amazing unity of theme and aim and purpose, beginning in the first chapters of Genesis and going right through the whole book. Another thing which has helped me about the Word of God is its very survival. When we have, uh, as I pointed out to you last week, when you remember, that for 4,400 years the Bible was in part, and more latterly in the whole, copied by hand painstakingly, without any of the modern mechanical devices whatsoever. Through war, through times of great catastrophe, through unperishable materials, this book has come down to us substantially and essentially what was originally written. And this is one of the most remarkable phenomena in history. That's one thing. We have in fact no other uh, document of the size of the Bible which has come down to us in so complete a form. And then another thing, of course, about the Bible, which um, I mentioned last week, was its prophecy, um, particular, uh, its particular prophecy in, in the question of the Messiah, how the Lord Jesus is uh, predicted and foretold his coming, right in the third chapter of Genesis, and then I just took a few references to prove my point, right the way through, all the different things about his birth, where he would be born, how he would be born, the very place he would be born, where he would be brought up, and all these things predicted hundreds of years before he even came uh, onto this earth. Uh, this has always, just because it is objective, has always um, encouraged my faith and of course so much else too uh, to do with prophecy um, general prophecy prophecy concerning the times of the gentiles concerning the career of certain empires their rise and their fall and so much else all this i have mentioned and of course i did mention the more subjective side that uh, its directness and dependability and the way it has spoken to the saints in every generation from the very beginning right down to today. The other thing I spoke about last week was the Jewish people. And I have said that to me, um, the Jewish people are one of the greatest encouragements, in a strange way, to my own faith. I do not believe in the future of uh, the Jewish nation as such a spiritual future for them i believe there is a future for them in christ that's a different matter um but uh, uh that would take a whole evening or two or more to go into and talk about and is a matter of very great um disputation and controversy but nevertheless whatever we may feel about prophecy there are certain things which you cannot get away away from there are certain things predicted in God's word which Zionists believe has come to pass. And it is, uh, as I said last week, surely one of the greatest miracles in world history that the Jewish people have gone back to the land of their origin 
and the lang their language which has been dead as far as the spoken language is concerned for over 2,000 years has not only been revived in the last uh, 80 years and particularly in the last 20 but there are 11 daily newspapers printed in it and over 1,000 books published per year in Hebrew the language that was used by the patriarchs and by the others that we know in the Old Testament has been livingly resurrected and is the only um, language that is, was completely died out in its spoken form which has been re resurrected as it were and is now in everyday use. Apart from that there are many other things about the wilderness blossoming as a rose, repopulation of the deserts in Israel and so on, all these things. Well, I must leave that. I want to go on this evening now to two other things that um, have encouraged me. They may seem, this first one, may seem very strange uh, to you all. Maybe I'm a strange person, I don't know, but uh, it's always encouraged my faith. Um, I have had difficulty in putting it into uh, a sort of word, a few words, a sentence. Now I put it like this, the unseen coordination of evil. Of course the actual coordination of evil in its effects is clearly seen, but the coordination itself is, seems to be unseen and invisible. And you know in a strange way this has always encouraged my faith. There must be, of course, some origin for evil in the world. Uh, why is it that when so many people want good and want good things, yet at the same time evil seems to be always a present, and moreover evil seems somehow or other often to triumph? So that human history is one long and never-ending conflict between good and evil. Right down to the present day, it's not as if culture and education and social progress has somehow or other alleviated things, not at all. We still had the same basic problem there with different circumstances. But in fact, the problem is there and is as deep-rooted and, in many ways, as apparent as ever. However, it's not the origin of evil or even the presence of evil that encourages my faith. It is the coordination of evil. Um, for instance, we have read in Ephesians 6, uh, from verse 10 to 18, and if you open that uh, chapter again, <laughs> there are a number of things uh, here which... Um, interest me uh, very, very much. It is the strange coordination of evil things, evil situations, and evil people that so fascinates me and has so impressed me. Why is it? I mean, there's an old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, it's a very true one. You get a troublemaker in a company of Christian people, and another troublemaker appears. And for some strange reason, the two troublemakers gravitate together. You find them buddies, they're friends. And before long, you've got real trouble. 
It's a strange thing why they always gravitate <laughs> together. Why, it always happens on a general scale and on a corporate, a smaller local scale. You get this kind of um, amazing uh, coordination of evil things. Of course, we've all got another saying. The world knows this as well. It never rains, but it pours, they say. <laughs> and this is the same idea that when evil comes to a person, it very rarely comes singularly. It's somehow or other, it comes, uh, one thing after another comes until the person is pulverized. And it's the same with situations. It's just the same kind of thing. There seems to be a harmonizing, it doesn't seem quite the word to use with evil, but there seems to be a harmonizing of evil and an organization behind evil. And this is the thing that this evening I want just to say a little bit about. Now, some people, especially those who are more intelligent and intellectual, find it very hard to accept that there could be any unseen organization of evil. But if you just sit back for a few moments and think, is heaven a disorganized place? Is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus disorganized? We know it's organic, but that doesn't mean to say that it's not, there's not a, a certain amount of living organization. What I mean is, is it just a spiritual anarchy? that is prevalent, that exists? Or is there order? Even in God's word it says about things on this earth, amongst Christians, let them be done decently and in order. No, a kingdom is not a democracy. A kingdom is a monarchy. The king is the centre of it all. And there is absolute rule and authority. Freedom there is. Liberty there is, but everything is done in order, and everything and everyone has its proper place, his or her proper place. And if you think for a moment, if in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, if in the family of God, or the household of God, or the temple of God, or however else you like to look at it, there is such an order, such an organization, then don't you think, therefore, that there must be some kind of organization in the opposite camp? <coughs> I think it stands to reason that there is. If we believe in an angelic host, then we must also believe in a fallen and evil angelic. If we believe in a God, and we believe in a devil, then immediately we come up against the unseen. And the Bible tells us that, in fact, the things which are seen are essentially controlled by the things which are unseen. Now, this is a very, very important point, and it's uh, not uh, an, a short time this evening. It's far too uh, brief a time to be able, really, to, um, to go into it. But surely, it is quite logical to recognize uh, the organization of evil forces and powers in the unseen. Any power <coughs> waging war, 
with an aim of winning victory must plan carefully and must organize its resources thoroughly. Now there are people who seem to think that Satan is a sort of dimwit. He's a sort of uh, empty-headed, uh, uh, well, simpleton. I mean, you and I can trip him up. Whereas, in fact, he is called in God's word the anointed cherub that covers. We are told that in the first place, as far as we can tell, he actually led the hosts of heaven in their worship of God. Uh, the, the devil is no uh, little uh, and uh, medium intelligence. He is a being of supreme intelligence and uh, capacity. And uh, you must not think that when the devil revolted and when his great ambition of possessing this universe and particularly of possessing man, instead of God possessing man, his possessing of man, you must not think that he is waging a relentless battle against God and his Christ in a kind of um, a disordered, uh, a willy-nilly fashion. Not at all. The devil has carefully planned all his campaign. Now, you've got a little bit of it even in this Ephesians 6. For instance, uh, verse 11, Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I looked up this word wiles in the Oxford Dictionary and it said this, Wiles, a trick, cunning, or procedure. The procedure of the devil, the tricks of the devil, or the cunning of the devil. Now the Greek word can be translated in a variety of ways. It can be translated stratagem, device, artifice, scheme, method. In fact we get our word, our English word method from this very word. Fraud, <coughs> deceit, Cunning devices. Now all this is the idea behind the wiles of the devil. I think I've told you the story when I was a, a lad and we were at the Sunday school anniversary at Gunnersbury when I was superintendent. The little lad stood up when he was reading this. He was only about, I think he was about 10 or 8, 9, 10. And he was reading this and uh, he read it as uh, put on the whole armour of God that he may be able to stand against the willies of the devil. <laughs> Well, I suppose it is true that, as I said then, as Lindsay Clegg pointed out at the time, if we put on the whole armour of God, the devil has got wills. <laughs> he goes. And it's better for the devil to have willies than wiles. But uh, we must never think that the evil one has no, has no stratagem. He has no organisation. He has no cunning. My word, he's been in this battle now for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and he still, believe it or believe it, now, he still thinks he's got a chance of winning. He will not lay down his arms. 
things because he thinks he has a chance of we know otherwise and we are the very testimony down here on earth that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth and that the victory is his but the devil is still fighting a battle it's a losing battle but he's fighting it and uh, and we must not think that he has no organization or a plan. No, he is fighting according to plan. And um, when you have the prophets predicting what is going to come about, they not only predict and foretell what God's purpose is, but they also show to us something of satanic purpose and stratagem. For instance, we know that at the end of this uh, world, of this age, there is going to be an evil and satanic incarnation, the man of sin. This man, who will be the devil incarnate, will lead the nation. And whilst it's hard for some people to believe that such a day will ever come, yet in Scripture we can see it clearly uh, predicted and foretold. And this is the whole, the devil's whole imitation of God's plan. God was manifest in the flesh. And at the end, this man of sin, the person we call the, the Antichrist, will be the devil manifest in the flesh. And will through lies, lying wonders and other great signs, will deceive the nations and will, through promises of peace and unity and harmony, will somehow or other obtain the uh, supreme control, if not of the whole, of a very large part of this world. Now, the devil has a plan. And at present, things are going according to his plan. The wonderful thing is that the Lord Jesus um, is turning everything to good account. And so every time the enemy works according to his plan, God, in this wonderful way, overrules it to the working out of his own purpose. So that sometimes when we look back, we cannot really see um, where it was God's purpose completely and where it was Satan's uh, intelligence and uh, devices coming in. Well, now, we must leave that. But there is a hierarchy of evil. And it is with this that we have to do. Now, in verse 13, you have the same um, um, point taken up again as verse 11. In verse 11, we're told, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, or, as the... Um, as the uh, Amplified New Testament puts it, the strategies of the devil, or as the New American Standard Version puts it, the stratagem of the devil. And then in verse 13 we read, Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now this is interesting, this is what I'm talking about this evening. In the evil day. Now, of course, there's a sense in which the whole of the days we are living in is the evil day. But here, it's as if there is a certain, there are certain times which can be called above the rest the evil day. There are times when somehow everything reaches a climax. And um, as if there's such a coordination of evil that um, it's just at that point that you are 
knocked out. And Paul is saying, now then, get the whole armor of God on, so that when that evil day comes and the thing reaches its climax, you may be able to stand. Now he is not just talking about the evil day at the end of the dispensation, uh, which is referred to in a number of places in the Bible, and he's not just speaking to us, I think. He is meaning that there are times when the enemy seems to be on top. There has been an evil day in the Congo since July. This is what uh, is meant here, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You see, things have been bubbling up for some time in the Congo. Things have been up and down, and there have been withdrawals, and there have been uh, going back, missionaries going back to the Congo. But now suddenly, in the last two or three months, there has been an absolute, as it were, crisis, spiritual crisis for the church, and it has been an evil day when the whole system and organization of evil has come out into the open. And uh, it just then it just seems as if everything is coordinated in the unseen, in such a way that people can't uh, escape. I could tell you many things. I mean, there was the family, for instance, who got back and they just missed the telegram from London, the cable from London, telling them not to proceed to their station. When they got to the station, the radio had been taken, and they weren't able to send out the SOS uh, so that they could in any way have been helped. Little things like that. There was a day of coordinated evil. And um, you see here there is a hierarchy in this chapter 6. Um, in verse 11, we have the devil. Now, the devil is not omnipotent, for which we may all thank the Lord. Uh, he is not omnipotent, he is not almighty, he is not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. Some people have got the idea uh, that the devil can be everywhere at the same time. He can't. And if he's here, he can't be in Australia. And when he's in Australia, he can't be in China. Uh, he is a spirit and uh, he has to move around. And I don't think any of us probably have ever, I wouldn't like to call it a privilege, of actually um, meeting him personally. And I don't think we should laugh either because it's not really a funny thing at all. Uh, none of us have actually, uh, our spiritual value has not warranted uh, a personal visit of the devil. Most of us have had a lot to do with millions in the satanic hierarchy um, all down the scale but there is a hierarchy and you've got it here here is the devil um, personally he is the head of the whole thing and then you have in verse 12 principalities and powers now this word principalities and powers in the New Testament phrase and you will find it at least eight times in the New Testament principalities and powers and uh, it is very interesting because really both words more or less mean the same thing. They mean rulers or authorities. And uh, you will understand straight away that we are not talking about physical rulers uh, and authorities because it says, for our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, and so on. 
Well, what is the difference, really, between principalities and powers, if they mean authorities or rulers? Here we have spiritual authorities. Now, just wait. What do we mean? Now, um, when someone says to me, um, or something about the building here, I say to them, oh, we can't do that. And then they say to me, well, why can't we do it? Then we say, because of the authorities. Now, this is a wonderful word. Uh, it can mean anyone. Uh, it can mean the Prime Minister, the Minister of Housing, or it can mean some uh, civil servant in Whitehall, or it can mean some little bumbling official uh, here uh, in the lo locality. And when we say um, the authorities, we mean all, all those who represent the authority of the country. Um, the authorities. And these are, we are called principalities and powers. Now the word principality means the beginning or the prime leader. Um, the, uh, the source, as it were. And uh, we, the idea behind this word principality is that here you've got the prime cause of evil. Our wrestling is against these principalities who are, as it were, heading it up. They are the initiators of it. They are the, um, the rulers of it in this sense that it all stems from them. But the word power has something a little different. It doesn't mean um, source or initiator, the, the prime cause, but it means more, uh, it means authority or the one whose will and commands must be obeyed. So you see, this hierarchy of evil, there are spiritual powers whose will and command has got to be obeyed in the unseen by evil spirits. Now that suggests immediately organization and coordination. And then if you go on, you have world rulers of darkness. And um, uh, the authorized version uh, put it in a slightly different way, but the word is world rulers. And the um, revised standard version has put it this way, world rulers of the present darkness. The darkness, the spiritual darkness, that is present uh, in the world. Now, again, this is very interesting because the word signifies a ruler of the whole world. And it means evil spirit powers who exercise worldwide authority over spiritual darkness, organizing it and manipulating it to their own ends. Now, it's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? World rulers of darkness. And I have often noticed, and I'm sure that uh, one day we shall understand it, uh, I, I want no more to be added to it than just my own, just an observation of mine, that uh, it is strange how in, even politically, things seem to move across the face of the globe, so that you have trouble here, and then you have a whole lot of trouble. Of course, it can be explained just on purely... Um, physical lines, human 
lines, but it is strange, and then how it'll move elsewhere, and suddenly, where it's been all peaceful, trouble starts, and before long, the whole thing is as absolute um, furnace of uh, fiery trouble and affliction. And so you see it moving over, and I am sure that somehow or other, these world rulers of spiritual darkness are involved. You see, everything is working or supposed to be being worked out according to a plan. Well, that may be. It is, I'm quite sure. Uh, you've got world rulers of darkness here, and world rulers of darkness means world rulers of darkness. It doesn't mean rulers of which means darkness. Uh, it means that there are great uh, satanic civil servants uh, who are uh, simply organizing the whole thing worldwide and um, planning everything so that it co is coordinated with the one supreme object of victory, of satanic victory. That's the whole point. The devil's in this, in this game, you know, to get victory, not just to make things difficult for us. His whole objective is to overcome the Lamb uh, of God and to finally set himself up as the world ruler in the scene as well as the unseen of this globe. And then you've got spiritual hosts of wickedness. And again, you have it translated in different ways. You have it as hosts of wicked spirits or Again, in the latest um, translations, it is both the Amplified and the new American Standard Version. Um, it is put like this, spirit forces of wickedness. So here you have a hierarchy of evil. The devil, principalities, powers, world rulers of darkness, spirit forces of wickedness. Now, that to me seems a rather terrible hierarchy and might well make us fear. And uh, have we any examples in Scripture? Well, there is one very remarkable example in Daniel. In Daniel and chapter 10, now, as you all know, Daniel is a remarkable book, because it unveils for us the unseen, and not only unveils the unseen at his own, in his own day, but it shows us something of what's going to come to the world uh, right down through the ages of time. We have the uh, prediction of the Babylonian Empire, which Daniel was, and the Persian Empire, which he um, just lived into, and then beyond that, the Greek and the Roman, right down to our own days. Now in Daniel and chapter 10 and verse 13, we read this. I think we better read from verse 12. This is the angel, the archangel of God, who touched Daniel. And he said, verse 11, And he said unto me, O Daniel, thou man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand and to humble thyself before thy God, thy words were heard. 
and I am come for thy word's sake. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia, or as the margin puts it, I was not needed there with the kings of Persia. Now verse 20, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I go forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. The American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, has put it like this. When I am through with the Prince of Persia, then the Prince of Greece shall arise. Now, what is all this about? Well, first of all, we have an archangel of God. Secondly, we have another archangel of God. One's called Gabriel, the other's called Michael. And then we have the Prince, of Persia, and we have the prince of Greece. Now, who are these people? These people are the principalities that are, we are, that are referred to in Ephesians 6. They are not visible rulers at all. They're not rulers of flesh and blood. They are the spiritual powers lying behind the seen empire. Now, if this is true, and I believe very firmly that it is, it means that the whole of human history is but the visible expression and manifestation of something behind it. In other words, there is something to be said for God's particular protection and covering of certain nations and empires in the sense that they have honoured him, righteousness exalted the nation, and in the sense that they have sought him, and, uh, and in generally, in principle, their dealings have been righteous. Now, it just does seem that there is something, and I'm not pretending that I understand it, but uh, uh, I am only making observations really this evening. I am simply saying that I believe this scripture in Ephesians 6 is not some poetic uh, idea of Paul. It is a revelation, a window into the unseen, into a hierarchy of organized evil, hidden by the devil, and coming, as it were, down to the serried ranks of evil, right down to hosts of wicked spirits. Now, we know quite a lot about the hosts of wicked spirits. The Lord Jesus had a tremendous amount to do with them in his ministry. When, in one man, for instance, they called out to the Lord Jesus and said, We are legion. In one man, there were thousands hovering and somehow involved. It's an amazing thing. You read again when he cast out the, and they entered into the swine and ran into the sea. And there are all these things. We don't want to, I don't want to frighten you this evening uh, with all this talk of the unseen and, and all that goes on uh, there. But you see, um, world history is not just a matter of coincidence and chance. There is something very, very much more to world history. And uh, 
and uh, dictatorships and evil men and evil systems, they're not by chance. Behind them all is a great driving force which has as its supreme objective the complete uh, possession and control of the whole inhabited world. Now, we have this great, uh, um, this great sort of uh, hierarchy of evil, and I must say, we must thank the Lord that we don't see too much of it. Uh, it's much better to deal with flesh and blood, I think, uh, than all this world. And I'm certainly not talking about this, and if you feel the least bit afraid this evening, it's a good thing, because it, it's a, a dangerous thing when Christians try to play around with the devil. They think that they can be big uh, with the devil. The Chinese have um, a proverb, don't tweak the tiger's tail, or he will eat you. And it's very, very true. We must resist the devil, but we must never try to engage him or interest him. And in one sense, the least we say about him, uh, the better, in one way. We must never become devil conscious, uh, so that our eyes are fixed on him. That's a terrible thing. And that's why, on the whole, we very rarely have had any studies upon uh, Satan or his uh, ranks. Nevertheless, there is a co coordination of evil which we can see. And we can see it in three ways, at least I, I see it in three ways. I see it generally, and um, I give you an example of this. I think of the death of our Lord Jesus. Now, there were two groups of people when it came to the execution of the Lord Jesus who were violently against each other. They were the Jews and the Romans. They hated each other. The Jews would have nothing whatsoever to do with the Romans, and the Romans had very little to do with the Jews. If you remember Zacchaeus, because he was a traitor, the, the word publican, by of course you all know, uh, it does not mean a person who keeps a public house, but is someone who was a traitor to his country, and in fact was in the pay of the Roman occupation army and forces. And all Jews hated publicans. They were unclean. They, they, they wouldn't eat with them. They would have nothing to do with them. And this was the thing they had against the Lord Jesus. He eats with publicans and sinners. He, he goes with those who are traitors and has a meal with them. Uh, no good Jew would have that. But you know, when it came to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the, the Roman rulers, headed by Pontius Pilate, and uh, the Jewish rulers, the Jewish House of Parliament, the Sanhedrin, were absolutely together. They were hand in hand. And they all, they just talked with each other and they worked it all out. And there's an even more interesting thing. Pontius Pilate and Herod wouldn't speak with each other. They'd had a long-standing argument. We, I don't know what it quite is over. Um, I believe it is mentioned somewhere. But you know that Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean, that is, he was descended from Esau, and the Jews disliked him therefore intensely. Uh, he was only half Jewish, and therefore abhorrent to him, to all good Jews. But Herod was the king, and uh, Herod therefore had no friends. 
Uh, the Jews didn't like him, and nor did the Roman authorities like him at all. Pontius Pilate was not even on speaking terms. But when the trial of Jesus came up, do you remember the story? He, um, Pontius Pilate sent uh, Jesus to Herod. He said, oh, doesn't he come in the in Herod's jurisdiction? Now, this was the very thing he wouldn't admit, that Herod had any jurisdiction. But then suddenly he discovered that Herod had a jurisdiction and that the Lord Jesus, this question of his uh, trial, somehow had connection with it. And so he sent it to Herod. And the scripture puts it very almost sarcastically, suddenly ironically, just simply puts it, and Herod and Pontius Pilate became friends from that day forward. You see, there's a coordination of evil. All these people with natural antipathy, natural antagonism, cannot get on with each other. Suddenly, when it comes to the one point when we want them to be antagonistic with each other, when we want them to remain divided, suddenly they're all one. And all the natural antipathy and antagonism of years is thrown overboard, and they all are absolutely united and together. Isn't that remarkable? Now, you know the story so well that it probably isn't the least bit remarkable to you. But it would be remarkable if, uh, if suddenly we put it like this, that the uh, Americans and the Russians got together uh, to uh, get rid of de Gaulle. Then we would be very surprised that, uh, that they could actually get together to get rid of... Uh, uh, of de Gaulle. We would wonder what exactly was happening, that great enemies like this could unite and work out a plan in a uni united way to uh, destroy the man. But we have other examples of it. Uh, let me give you another example that always amazes me. It's the First World War. The First World War, I think those of you who know a little bit of your history, will know was one of the most remarkable wars the world has ever seen because no one wanted it and no one believed it would come. But it came. And even a month before it broke out in this country, most of the people in this country never believed that there would be a war with Germany. They didn't want it, the Germans didn't want it, and no one else really wanted it. But it came. And when it came, it locked the whole of Europe in one of the most terrible wars that the world has ever seen with more men dead on the field than in any other war. And do you know what happened during that war? Most of the monarchies that we are familiar with disappeared, or the first great blows were struck, which were, struck, which were to bring about their collapse. And the whole face of Europe changed. Countries came into being, that we knew nothing of before, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, many other countries all came into being. And Germany was left without her emperor and in some ways was left so weak and so unprepared that in fact it prepared the very way for the Second World War. It all came out of the First World War. You see, it is the most remarkable thing. But do you know the most remarkable thing of all? The Russian Revolution broke out in 1917, during that war. Now, I think you all know that the royal house, the Tsars, 
the Tsars of Russia, were in fact related both to the British reigning house and to the German reigning house and most of the other reigning houses of Europe. If there had been no war, there would have been no doubt whatsoever that both Germany and Britain would have helped the uh, white Russians in their cause. But they were so locked in a battle which had wiped out simply thousands and thousands and thousands of men and left Europe absolutely uh, a devastated field of war that when the Russian Revolution broke out, no one could help the white Russians. And the greatest menace so far to the world arose. Now that's all very remarkable, isn't it? Uh, now, is it just coincidental? Is it just that it was a strange sort of, uh, well, just a strange sort of thing? That, or, in fact, was it a coordination of evil? Uh, in such a way that... Uh, that the real thing was not only to change the face of Europe, but to bring to power a new system as terrible as any system in the long history of the world. Well, I don't know what you think, but uh, it's very, very interesting. And another very interesting thing is this, as historians will tell you, it was the First World War that changed the face, not only of Europe, but of the world. A whole era that had lasted for centuries and centuries, basically unchanged, disappeared. Well, there we had something which I just wonder, how much were principalities and powers and world rulers of darkness involved in all that took place? The war, as the programme, I believe, on television, I haven't seen it, uh, has been entitled The War That Nobody Wanted. How exactly did it, in fact, come about? Well, there you are. Then I think there is a coordination of evil seen in our personal circumstances. Um, I think of Job. Um, now, from the point of view of Job's own home, it must have just seemed rather strange. First, there came uh, news that he had lost uh, his flocks. A little later, something else happened. He'd lost something else. A little later, someone came in and said his sons had gone. And finally, the last blow came when he felt he fell terribly ill and was near to death. Now, these things all happened one after another till Job was simply pulverised. Job didn't know that it was the coordination of evil. He didn't know that Satan had been into the presence of God and had permission to uh, so organise evil in the circumstances of Job that the only thing that he couldn't touch was the life of Job, his essential life. Now, there is a coordination of evil in uh, the life of a single man. And don't you think, now and again, may the Lord never try us as he, as he will not, above what we are able, that in all our lives there comes, in greater or smaller measure, uh, sometimes a number of times, sometimes certainly in a bigger way once, uh, a time when everything seems to be coordinated and it seems that somehow or other you're finished. One blow comes after another, each one timed, timed. 
in such a way that it absolutely undercuts your confidence and stamina. Till in the end, you feel that you're finished. Have you ever noticed in the lives of those newly saved ones how, uh, well, those of us who care for them see it, how no sooner are they saved than there are forces hovering in the background and little things they're not even aware of uh, start to happen, which because they're young, they don't realize where it will lead or what will happen. And uh, you can see uh, the enemy trying to unsettle them, trying to trap them, trying to ensnare uh, them. And, um, well, you must all have had the kind of thing. Let me give a little illustration. Some of you girls, some of the sisters, you must have had something like this when in the morning you've either, you've either had a very real blessing from the Lord or, as one person told me, whenever the enemy's busy, you've either had some very real blessing or you're just about to get it. Uh, but it's one or other. Have you ever had the experience, something like this, a letter comes in the morning with very bad news and then the baby cries all day long for no apparent reason, just nothing seems to quieten it at all and then uh, the cake goes wrong and, uh, and then suddenly the tank springs a leak. You didn't even notice it but the upstairs bedroom is sort of swimming in water and to crown it all the husband comes back in a bad mood. Or you get the other kind of thing that happens when you're at work um, and uh, somehow it starts much the same way. Something goes wrong at work, then something else happens, then the wife owns and says, do you know there's a, the tank sprung a leak and the whole front room's ruined. I was out shopping, came back and found the ceiling down with water dripping everywhere. And then something else happens. And then you find your great aunt Alice is knocking on the door that evening with her luggage. She's flown in from South Africa and uh, has taken up an invitation that you gave three or four years ago. Now, that may all seem very strange to you, but that is exactly what does in fact happen uh, now and again. And why does it always happen at once? I mean, if we had it one week and something else the next month and something else the next month, but it always seems to come together. So that blow after blow falls, uh, just timed, as it were, to finish us. Well, I must say, this has impressed me again and again and again that there is a coordination. It encourages my faith. Because if there is a coordination of evil and an organisation behind it, there's some reason for it. And that makes me believe implicitly that the Lord Jesus is on the throne and that all that we've got in this book is absolute truth. There's some reason why the enemy is coming out against us. And uh, then you always find that generally it's those who are really going on the most with the Lord that find the most of this kind of thing uh, in their circumstances or in their way. Those who are prepared to make friends of the devil usually uh, find that uh, they're spared a lot of this kind of thing. And it happens corporately as well. We've had it, as I think you know, many times here. Um, the kind of thing that happens, one goes suddenly sick and then some other brother just doesn't turn up. Uh, it might be quite, quite legitimate, but he just doesn't turn up and uh, something else happens. The stewards um, all come late and then someone has a coughing fit in the middle of the word 
and has to get up from the very centre of the room and push past everyone. The telephone rings at the same time. We had it, haven't we? And then I, another very strange thing I must say is that when we've had the most blessed Bible studies of all, the tape recorder has always gone wrong. <laughs> it is absolutely true. Leviticus, I remember the book of Leviticus because it was quite outstanding and something went quite wrong with the tape recorder so it was never recorded. Ecclesiastes was another book that was quite outstanding in many ways and it was never recorded. Something went wrong. It sounded just, and they're not being blasphemous, it sounded just like Donald Duck. And it was played back. It was simply terrible. Something entirely gone wrong inside the machine. And so you could go, it's okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ten to nine, you see. It's not as if I'm going over my time. <laughs> you see, it is strange how these things happen. I won't say that this evening is so absolutely important, but it is absolutely true that there is a coordination of evil. Behind in the answer, uh, we always know when something big is going to happen, someone's going to get saved, or the Lord's going to speak in a special way. I've always pleaded with those who are in charge of stewarding, those in charge of, of the tape recorder, those in charge of other things. I've always pleaded with them, be absolutely Burn. Um, always said, um, make sure that um, uh, everything, uh, that you're absolutely, you've got everything under control. Just make sure that everything is under control, you see. It's strange how things can happen. And they do happen. And they always happen somehow or other just at the point where there's something of great spiritual value somewhere or other. Well now, if I was in another company I could say a whole lot of other things, but I can't. Not because I don't think you'd take them, but I, do, I think it's not right to upset people. And You know what happens, people go away and think, oh he was talking about me, I'm sure he was talking about me. Uh, then when he said this or said that or said the other. But there are many things we could tell you that happen from day to day in this place. Uh, uh, we have periods of routine uh, life and living and then suddenly when something's about to happen we, everything really goes wrong. And, uh, we have people in tears and other people in uh, moods and other people a sort of well, nearly out of their mind and all converging together uh, upon us so that we, and we've had times when simply we just didn't know where we're doing Margaret's been rushing to the door I've been rushing to the telephone and then we've both been crossing and I went to the door and she went back to the telephone and we just went up well it may seem strange to you but uh, we've always said just, there's something something somewhere in the air now I may just possibly have frightened one or two of you who are younger uh, in the Lord. And I'd like to say this. Remember. Remember this. In, for myself, I'm a little older, just a little older in the Lord now. And um, I find that this coordination of evil is an encouragement to my faith in an objective way. You see, when it first used to happen, I was one of the um, clever and smart spiritual Alex who always say oh well of course it's coincidence it's coincidence but after a few years went by it happened with alarming regularity um, and I began to notice that whenever this happened I began to watch and then sure enough something happened which uh, we've not always been able to make 
so public, but which we've known was the point. It was something very precious to the Lord was on the way. And it happened, you see. And other times the things happened and then we've watched. And sure enough, there's been a hit back. And uh, after a while, after I've been saved since 1943, that's... 21 years, an awful long time now, um, in one way. Yet, you see, I've now seen enough to convince me that it cannot be coincidence. Uh, There's something objective, one can say objectively. And uh, therefore, it seems to me that there is something that, um, uh, well, there's something there uh, that at least encourages my faith. I say, well, praise the Lord. When the enemy is so organized, then what we're in must be of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be organizing this uh, in this way. I told the story, you've heard it before. Spurgeon always used to, when he illustrated this, he always used to say that he had a dream uh, early one Sunday morning and he saw into the satanic headquarters for London. And uh, he saw the devil... Uh, it was the Lord's Day, and he saw the the various spirits there, and the devil was saying, now what about the city temple? Yes, he said, I think you should go so-and-so to the city temple, get someone to faint in the congregation, uh, cause there to be a kerfuffle in the foyer, and just generally upset Dr. Parker. And then he said, now then there's the Westminster Chapel, so-and-so you better go. Uh, there, and he gave him his instructions. Then he said, now does the Salvation Army Citadel. Now they are on fire there. We must have sent two of you along uh, down there to stop them getting any further. And then, of course, Spurgeon, in his, uh, he was often accused of being proud, but he wasn't the least bit. Uh, it was just that he was very humorous. He said, and then he heard them say, and then there's the Metropolitan that man Spurgeon. No, I think I think I better take him on myself. So I'll go down there. <laughs> well, it may seem strange, but in fact, I'm sure something along that line does in fact happen. For the evil one, whilst he doesn't know everything, he has spiritual intelligence and he hears everything. Now, remember all of you. For those of you who've only been saved recently, and those who are oldest eldest in the Lord, remember these four things. Remember first, Christ has already won the victory. Now this is the thing the devil cannot bear. If you'll only remember he's already won the victory. You've no need to get frightened. He's won the victory. And the devil's doing his best to cover it up. And he has done a very good job amongst Christian, in Christian circles in covering up the victory of Christ. So that most Christians seem to be unaware that Christ has won the victory. Therefore, they're on the wrong footing to start with. Christ has already won the victory. Now, if you look at Colossians and uh, chapter um, 2 and uh, verse uh, 14, last part, it says, He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, having despoiled the principalities and the powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now these are the very principalities and powers we're talking about. He has triumphed, 
He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them through his cross. The Lord has won a victory. So however much, the, however hard the devil hits, however um, uh, rampant the forces of evil may seem, just remember this, the victory is already won. Christ has sat down at the right hand of God. He's not fighting, he's sat down at the right hand of God. And all we've got to do is proclaim the fact that the Lord reigns and that we're hidden in him. Ephesians 1, verse 20, the last part again, made Christ to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now that's a wonderful position for us to step into. The Lord Jesus has got the whole thing in subjection under his feet. He's far above all principality and power. Isn't that wonderful? And he's head over all things to us who are his church. The second thing I want you to make sure that you remember in this battle is that complete provision is offered to us. Now, Ephesians 6, verse 10, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Complete provision has been made for us. If you and I fall in this battle, it's because we haven't put on the whole armour. Now, I won't go through all the armour, but it's here in this chapter. You go home and read it very carefully and you will discover that Christ is to be put on. Put up ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's the simple thing. The Lord Jesus is the armour of God. And in him you will find everything you need. Righteousness, peace, truth, faith, everything is there in him. And we've just got to put on the whole armour. The third thing to remember is all we must do is to stand and resist the devil. We don't have to go out against him. Uh, we don't have to aggravate him or antagonise him. All we have to do is stand. Listen. Put on the whole armour of God, verse 11, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Then again, verse 13, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and so on. We, all we've got to do is stand. And if you read in James and 4 and verse 7, you will read, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But before that, it says, humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves ever before God and he will exalt you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you see, it is a wonderful thing, this, this uh, battle. First, the Lord's won the victory. Second, we have a complete armour that we have to put on. Thirdly, we stand and resist and praise the Lord. That's all. And that is faith. You know, this battle is won by praising the Lord. And I don't mean that hollow mockery that sometimes goes for praise. But I mean praise that really comes from the heart. When a person praises the Lord, the victory is brought right into the situation. Stand, resist, praise the Lord. I think that's wonderful. And, uh, and then remember 
lastly, in Revelation 12, verse 11, three things in this great battle, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. We must know more and more and more of the power of the cleansing blood of Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the I would never dare to mention even the devil or any of his hosts without mentioning the blood of the Lamb. Wouldn't dare, wouldn't stand for a moment before him if it wasn't for the blood of the Lamb. That we must go back to. Any shred of self-righteousness, any shred of self-sufficiency will be completely, it'll be discovered and the enemy will make it the point at which we fail. It's the blood of the Lamb by which we overcome and the word of our testimony. When you're having a bad time, it's not so easy to speak. Now, in the book of Revelation, the testimony is not just a little word that we give, but it's spoken of as the testimony of Jesus. That is, we have someone in us. And the, the, the phrase that's used literally means holding the testimony of Jesus. Uh, John speaks of those that hold the testimony of Jesus. That's the kind of testimony you and I want. Where we know the Lord. We have the Lord. The Lord is in, he that hath the Son hath the life. That's the testimony of Jesus. The life of the ages, the life of God. The testimony of Jesus. And the word of our testimony. Now here is the point. When we speak with our lips and confess the testimony. When we actually with these lips give audible expression to the fact that we are Christ's and Christ is ours. That's what it means. The word about his name. If the devil can shut us up, he's won a great victory and there are many silent Christians. And you know, on the whole, they're miserable Christians. And they're not only miserable ones, you will often discover they're defeated Christians. It's when with us the word of our testimony, you know, when you've spoken, when, however falteringly, however poorly, whenever you take part, and don't think that the word of testimony only means when you stand up in front of unsaved people or in the office. It does mean that. But it also means when we praise the Lord from the heart in the midst of his people or in our own room. There's something that hears. And, um, or, when we, or when we pray sometimes, we can give expression to the testimony of Jesus. And um, sometimes it's in contribution in other ways. But nevertheless, it's the word of our testimony. And it's the cross as well. They love not their lives <coughs> unto the death. Well, uh, that must be the heart of it all. Uh, where there's an uncrucified self-life, the devil's got a playground. And he'll come back to it again and again and again. And... Uh, it's only when we love not our lives unto the death, we let them go, uh, the way of the cross, that the enemy loses his playground. And he suddenly finds that there's, uh, the gates are barred and there's a notice outside, no admittance. He can't get in anymore. Uh, it's gone, it's finished for him. There's a divine veto on it. It's, it's uh, ended. And, um, and he just can't get inside in the way that he used to. And this is the way they overcame him. 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their lives unto the death. Well, there you are. There's a few things that have helped me. Uh, I think in the end, of course, I've spoken about objective things, but of course in the end, as people have pointed out to me, it must be what is contained in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, the little phrase, I know him. It's Paul says, for I know him whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. But you know the phrase that is the heart of it all? I know him. And that's the way to know the Lord. To know him as our salvation. Yes. And he has received him. To them gave you the right to become children of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Know him as our sanctification. Jesus Christ made unto us sanctification. Righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Sanctification. To know Christ like that as our separatedness unto God. To know Christ as uh, our hope of glory. I don't know what your hope of glory is. I hope it's not in a decision form. My hope of glory is this. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 I know him as my hope of glory. I know him as my sanctification, not a thing, not an experience, not a mere blessing, a detached blessing, but a person. And I know my salvation, not as a gift of something, but as a gift of some person, someone, Christ. And I think we must know him as the word of God. For in him, whatsoever the promises of God are, in Christ is the yea, wherefore through him also is the Amen. He is the Word of God. To know Christ as the Word of God. This book is the manifestation of the living Word, the written Word, the manifestation of the living <coughs> Word. And I think we must know him as the Amen. Revelation 3 verse 14, Jesus said to the church, which was the worst of all, hopelessly superficial, awfully, awful in its devotion, so dead and lukewarm. And Jesus said, I am the Amen. I thought that's so beautiful. If he'd said it to Philadelphia, it would have meant something quite different. But he said it to the church, which was no good. As if he was saying, here's failure. Well, I'm still the Amen. I'm still the Amen to God's purpose. And I think you and I have got to know Christ as the Amen, because when we look at one another, we think, oh, no. No, it's no good. It'll never get done. When you look at yourself, you think, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. I think the Lord's taken on too much with me. And then we look at the world, and we say, oh, no, it's impossible. But do you know him as the Amen? The Amen to God's purpose, the Amen to God's word, when God says, Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. Do you know? Jesus is the Amen. It's as if he is the Amen. 
Not only does he say amen before God, but he is the amen. He's going to do it. Somehow, he's going to do it with us all. Well, let's praise him. And let's remember that uh, in the end, when even all these other things go, and we have no encouragements even to our faith, we still have him, whom to know is life eternal. Let's pray.